Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I use the present as a foundation with which I stretch my hands into the future. And whether anything in the future is there to greet my hand has a lot to do with how we behave on many levels in the now, but also has to do with things just beyond my control. The British writer L.P. Hartley opened his classic novel, The Go-Between, with an unforgettable line. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. There's a long-standing idea of literature being a vehicle to explore these quote-unquote foreign countries, be they geographical or cultural or temporal. My guest today has been one of the most innovative voices with regard to the immigrant experience, especially through his excellent 2007 novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Juno Diaz is a Dominican-American writer who won the Pulitzer Prize for that novel thanks to its incredibly modern storytelling. The prose was insane, with different characters' vernaculars switching on and off. The timelines, inspirations, characters felt incredibly fresh and exciting. It's the story of a young Dominican-American boy who navigates this new world of America whilst pining for the homeland of the Dominican Republic, and he copes with this and with the turmoil of adolescence by immersing himself in typical teen nerd culture of comics and sci-fi. There was magical realism in there, there was pop culture, there was postmodernism, there was politics. If you haven't read that book, then I really strongly suggest that you do. In 2012, Juno Diaz followed up with a collection of short stories, This Is How You Lose Her, that revolved around the convoluted relationships, or rather conquests, of a central character called Junior de las Casas, who was also a major character in the earlier novel, and who's been seen as an alter ego for Juno Diaz himself. Juno Diaz is now a professor of creative writing at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, as well as a contributing editor to the Boston Review of Fiction. In this episode, we talk about his inspirations for his work, his process, and what makes him tick as an artist. The character of Junior de las Casas is a recurrent one in a lot of your fiction to date and considered to be your alter ego. Can you describe when this character came to life in your head? And, and at that point, did you realize that he was going to be so central to your storytelling? I wasn't sure. I created this character when I was kind of casting about in college as an early writer in my university. and. You know, I was looking for an autobiographical shortcut that would allow me kind of to evoke first person. And I kind of stumbled upon this person who I thought, okay, would be close enough to me and yet would be estranged enough that would give me room 
that I didn't, wouldn't feel like I was just doing transcription. I, I don't know why, but the confessional mode is ruinous for me. I, I'm terrible at essays. <laughs> I'm terrible just at being confessional. It's just not my strong point. So you needed some distance, perhaps. Write what you know, but with a little bit of, of distance. Yeah, no, I, I definitely I come at things crab-like, you know, from the side. Uh-huh. Just easier for me. If I've got a, a layer or two between me, it just helps a lot. And so I stumbled upon this character and gave him some very notable differences uh, from me. What are some of those differences, would you say? For example, and this was very, very key, didn't have any sisters. For me, my sisters are beyond foundational. It's hard to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine, but it's also none of my friends would recognize a world, my world without my sisters, right? And I had a very different family situation because I had two sisters only about a year apart in each direction, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And the second thing was I myself don't mind being kind of openly nerdy and openly smart. By smart, I just mean like I wouldn't just obscure my um, my education, you know. So with you, Nir, I found somebody who did. Who wanted to put that facade in front of, of his intelligence, you mean? Yes, and who wanted no one to know that he was particularly smart. And that helped. Do you think he'll be a feature of future fiction? Is there still a journey for him in your storytelling? It's interesting because I started out writing really bad fantasy novels. In fact, the first book I wrote was a failed horror novel in the Stephen King mode. Mm -hmm. The second book I wrote was a failed fantasy novel in... I I couldn't even lay that at the feet of anyone with any talent. It had like... um, I'm sure there's some, some hack idol I could place it at their feet, but no... I always had this image of myself of being a more prolific writer. Turns out I'm not. And second of all, turns out that every time I I try to write something that's not closer to my life, uh, it always ends up falling apart. So even if I don't, would rather not have this set of character complex at the center of my fiction, I, I think I might be saddled with them for longer. So it seems like it's a question of perhaps this character, but also with the kind of theme that you develop uh, in your debut novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. And in that novel, uh, the immigrant experience is the theme you develop. And that's reflected in part in the alternating styles that you endow all your different characters with. There's a lot of different language that pops up, mixtures of different vernaculars. And how do you draw on these different languages? Is there a special process where you have to put yourself in a certain headspace to develop? Or do you jump from one to the other in a very instinctive way? How do you develop that special prose? Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing on a friend of mine's phone this picture and this guy was saying, and the secret formula is crime, you know. And I think for me, and the secret formula is agony. I think I I just agonize over everything. I think first and foremost, I just lived in these strange multiple realities. Many of us do. Blessed are those who are monolithic, mm-hmm. you know. But most of us live in multiple realities, and I had such strong multiple realities, you know. The sense that, you know, I spoke one language at home completely, and it was a very, very different, very different culture than the one that I was uh, accustomed to. 
the custom that I grew up in uh, in the United States, the one that surrounded us would be more accurate. And then, of course, I had this entire other nerdy world that I existed in, which made no sense to my sort of Dominican world. It didn't make a lot of sense because, remember, this was in the late 70s, early 80s and onward. It didn't make sense to a lot of my regular friends who just wanted to play baseball. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, fell head over heels for science fiction, for fantasy, for role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, for comic books, old movies. Do you think that was a way of dealing with the strange alien world outside your family home that, that you sought refuge in these genres, these fantastical genres? Or is that too easy an explanation? No, I mean, sometimes I think that. I, I think, you know, I mean, perhaps all of us are doomed to fall in love with something head over heels. Perhaps not everyone, but most of us, you know, and I, I just seem to have been doomed to fall in love with these things. I look at my siblings, you know, four of us immigrated, we're roughly the same age, you know, just a four or five year gap between all of us. And I look at the outcomes and I don't know. I mean, I look at how different each of us were and I'm not sure that... There are no other sci-fi or fantasy nerds in your family? Not the same way. Not. I just mean that, like, sometimes I explain my own outcome in a very deterministic way. And yet, I look at my siblings who went through the same thing and went in completely different directions. So how much is this that we need to survive? Because believe me, I needed to survive. My world just sucked. My family was crazy. <laughs> I myself should have been medicated. You know, we didn't know anything about medication in those days. I should have been in therapy. You know, we didn't have access to it. We didn't even know that it was a possibility in my family and in the community I grew up. So yeah, man, I had, I had a lot of reasons for me to kind of connect with something that pulled me out of my moment. At the same time, it could have been anything. Could have been baseball, could have been a thousand other things. But for me, it was this thing. I believe it came out of me in important ways, but sometimes I got my doubts, man. And I think <laughs> about my siblings. When we all sit down at dinner, I look around and I'm like, you know what? <laughs> so I don't so know different? about this, bro. I don't know about this. These explanations might be a little too pat. Wow. Wow. And so from this obsession with fantasy, sci-fi, comics, you then segged into writing. You built on this fountain of... Pain, maybe, and, and then this obsession with, with these other worlds, and you found this outlet in writing. Was that your therapy? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was something both – there's something therapeutic, but you have to understand there's also – and, of course, it doesn't mean that these things can't be all entangled, right? I think there was something about how much I loved reading mm -hmm. and I loved storytelling, and this was just an excuse for me to be in the mix. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like you love soccer and you sign up to be the kid who carries the balls. You know, you can't play soccer, but you're going to figure out a way to get involved, you know. To get close to the action. Yeah, man. To just be in the thing that you love. And I felt that strongly. I found myself, this gave me just such a great excuse to read, and which is what I really wanted to do, you know. I can identify with that. And I'm sure many of our listeners can too. One of the major villains of Oscar Wow is a, a true character, the uh, Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo, sorry for the pronunciation, who's a just borderline satanic tyrant who's responsible for a great deal of family trauma, national trauma. Is that sort of 
political dimension, political trauma, an integral part of the immigrant experience? Do you need this sort of almost scarecrow antagonist figure to explain part of the immigrant experience, the exodus away from the homeland and so on? I'm not sure. That's always the case. I know certainly for the Dominican experience, Trujillo was a cornerstone. In some ways, he was uh, kind of a binding, unifying experience. Not all Dominicans, certainly not all Dominicans back in the Dominican Republic or in the diaspora, found him malignant. I would argue that he was profoundly malignant. I came up in a family that was very uh, pro-Trujillo. Mm-hmm. Certainly my father was a big supporter of the dictatorship. I grew up on the inside of that. I didn't, from my childhood on, I just didn't see anything remotely warming or humane or even democratic about any of the stories that I was hearing. And the more that I dug into this, you know, if I had books, that kind of generation, my father's sort of political cadre, if I had books, they loved Trujillo. And the more I dug into it, the more terrified I got. It was an incredibly gothic and macabre and grisly tale. And, you know, when we talk about immigration, though, of course, we understand and uh, how perhaps this is a commonality, the immigrant experience. Immigration is so traumatizing to begin with. Being torn from home, from language, from food, from society, from place, from weather, from even the, the ineffables and the indescribables, these just fantastic nuances that make up the moment, that make up the conjuncture you know, then make up your place time. Being ripped from that is already wild as shit and very, very hurtful. But then, of course, you know, rare is the country and what we used to call the third world that um, wasn't riven by political violence of some form, right. by some sort of extreme inequality represented usually in a group of people, you know, a cohort, a, a leadership, a set of politics. So, you know, I think definitely it, it can be a a language which many of us speak. Are there any elements or interpretations of your books that you feel sometimes or too often are misunderstood or misinterpreted? Are there are there elements where you're like, I just wish people would stop saying that this is how you lose or is about this or Oscar Wow's about that? Or or, or do you feel generally that your work has been well understood and interpreted uh, by either the media or scholarship. Or- no, I, I listen. I, one thing I know is that if you're if you're a person of color, a person of African descent, an immigrant, someone from a poor background, someone from New Jersey, someone who doesn't satisfy people's simplistic formulas. I'm not from an Ivy League undergraduate. I don't have a white parent. I don't have any of the kind of standard sort of bells and whistles that people in this country really like. Look, I understood very quickly that I was going to be a site of people's bullshit, (laughs) people's projections, people's nonsense. And the best thing about being an artist is that I don't have to play both sides of the court. The only thing I need to concern myself with as an artist is my work. What is such a relief is that I don't have to participate in its evaluation or in some of the 
gibberish conversations about it. Now, I've been fortunate because I've had a lot of very smart, important, dedicated scholars that have done enormously valuable and insightful work on what I've written. Of that, I cannot complain. On the other hand, what person of color, what immigrant, you know, what poor person, what person from New Jersey is well understood. And so I think I just, I, I'm always happy that it's not my role to be trying to control people's reactions, to be trying to like be a source of edification. I do the work and then the world responds whichever way they want to. If they want to respond in, you know, simplistic and cruel and really just messed up sort of ways, you know what? That's on you. That's not really as much my problem as people would like to think. And that's one of the great reliefs of being a writer is that I've always drawn great strength and comfort to know that this isn't the community I'm writing for. I'm writing for a community that hasn't yet arrived and may never arrive. You know, it's like being a writer is very, very interesting because while the book may be done, what makes a book, which is a book and its audience, is always in a state of becoming. Mm -hmm. It's something that never completely ends. There's no closure on this. And that's always a great relief for me. You think there's a, a permanent evolution in the existence of the book and, and its relationship with the public and, and its readers? I think as long as a book exists in any form, there can be a different reader. And as long as there can be a different reader, there can be a totally different sense of what that book is. And that is just so essential to the experience of art. Even in ways that might not have been anticipated, it might touch. Hopefully. I can't imagine my readers, and that's what's great. I use the present as a foundation with which I stretch my hands into the future. Wow. No more, no less. And whether anything in the future is there to greet my hand has a lot to do with how we behave on many levels in the now, but also has to do with things just beyond my control. If the present was all I had as an artist, my God, would any of us do any of this? I guess some people <laughs> like the money and they like the applaud, but I don't. I, I mean, I don't. It's not enough for me. I have to have this kind of faith-based sense that there is something else beyond this that in some ways just elevates what I'm doing, elevates what we're all doing. My next question is about your book, This Is How You Loser, published in 2012. And it's an interesting hybrid beast, this book, because it's a short story collection, but it also feels and reads like, uh, at times, a novel, or feels a bit almost like a concept album of a great rock band. Or, But most of the stories were actually published in different places at different times, a lot of them in The New Yorker. When you were writing these different stories, were you consciously building a collection or was there a master plan behind that to, to assemble that later on or not so much? No, I, you know, I made a huge error. My first book drowned. My editor was like, let's publish this as a collection of stories. And I was like, no, let's, let's just say stories. In the end, the truth of it was the reason I was saying this was in my mind because I kind of wanted to create three or four books of stories that would comprise one larger novel. Mm -hmm. And 
part of why both Drown and This Is How You Loser work this way is because, in a sense, they give both that, oh, experience of I'm reading a book, short stories, but I'm also reading something very, very sort of connected, very kind of integrated. So that was the dream. The idea was to evoke the best of both and hopefully diminish the worst of both. And so can you define what you think the best of both might be? I mean, it depends, at least in the context of which I'm pitching these stories, because there's multiple traditions, both in the novel and in the short story. So I think it's more, we got to begin with like, what what sport in the novel am I playing? Was I playing soccer? Was I playing baseball? Like, what set of traditions was I in conversation with, you know? And I think when it comes to the kind of novels that I'm writing, and certainly one way of thinking about them is that they're not highly experimental. They don't uh, partake of the what we understand of the genres of science fiction, of crime, some of those things, deeply influenced by post-colonial writers, et cetera, et cetera. I think that for me, one of the worst elements of, for example, a short story collection would be the ways that we ask the reader to, in some ways, recreate their connection with the book. It's so easy to be reading a short story connection and find a story where you're just kind of like, you know what, I I can't even anymore. This voice is so different from what I was reading before. Mm -hmm. You know, the momentum doesn't build up. And for many short story writers, that's part of the joy of it. They don't want the momentum to break up. There's something about the disruption. And and for me, I've never liked that. For me, that's always been, again, one tradition's dislike is another tradition's joy, Mm -hmm. right? That's why I think it's important to kind of set it up. It's not the universal. That kind of disruptive element, I like disruption, but I didn't like it that much. So I kind of preferred there to be momentum moving through the tales. So over what sort of period did you write all these stories? Because then you must have maintained that momentum in your head over all this time. And I think having the overarching project is important. And then you could create momentum simply by rereading everything that you've read, figuring out where in this sort of mosaic this works. You know, and I think one of the things about the short stories that short stories do really, really, really well, which is why there's traditions and writers who enjoy that sort of disruptive element, is that short stories can give you a real strong blast of mortality, of the passing of things. In 12 or 13 pages, you can get an entire world and suddenly be torn out. And it evokes, it just elicits in us a sense that that's us too. And that's our world. Where novels can sort of, you know, they can trick you for the three, four, five hundred pages is that life... That life is solid enough and makes sense enough that there's a 500-page story that isn't going to get cut off. The short story fights against that a little bit. And so these are things that are on my mind when I'm doing this, you know. Um, there's the consolation of the novel. You stand with a fat novel, you know, at least it won't end for 500 pages. Coming back to the immigrant experience, if you had to express your focus on writing about that, in a single word, what's the emotion or feeling that you would use that presumably you're drawing on? Is it a sense of disorientation relative to the new culture that you're in? Or is there an element of frustration of being misunderstood or a sense of nostalgia with regard to the, the homeland? Or what, 
what's the well of emotion that you're drawing on and that you might use in a single word? I would say most profoundly is multiplicity. Multiplicity or simultaneity. Living this multiplied reality simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's so odd. You're talking in English and your brain is moving in sometimes in Spanish. You're talking in Spanish, your brain is sometimes in English, and then sometimes you're aligned. That's a third person, you know. Sometimes the past is really beyond just the past. Like sometimes you're stunned that you're in a world because your brain thinks that you're in another world. Mm. And this constantly, just the way that these two worlds will collide and intermingle and sometimes just only send strange little Morse code to each other, (laughs) sometimes coexist. Sometimes you're swimming in both very densely. Sometimes it's very arid. And so I always felt that it's like multiplicity. I am both haunted, haunter, and the haunting, all three at once. A great multiplicity. You wrote a children's book in 2018 called Island Born, uh, which was illustrated by Leo Espinosa. What attracted you to that genre? Why a children's book? What were you trying to accomplish? What were you trying to share? <laughs> well, you know, I did it like 20 years too late. I was trying to write a story for my godchildren. <laughs> and um, they always asked me when they were young, they were like, oh my God, you know, you write books, write a book for us. It's like that letter that arrives 20 years later, right? And uh, the, the, they apologize. How old were these godchildren of yours when the book came out? They were 28. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And did they enjoy it? Did they at least recognize, uh, did it reconnect them to something? I hope so. You know, I tend not to bother people about their reactions to my work because it places people in a weird spot. I'm one of these few people, well, I don't know if it's a few people, but I definitely can spend an entire year with my godchildren and never bringing up writing once. Wow. Or even the books that I was supposed to have. It's just not my, not my nature. I just don't, you know, I have so many of my friends as writers, that's all they talk about every five seconds. And that's cool. That's, a, that's its own world. Probably why they write so much, but not me. But you're able to separate the work and the other life, as it were. Yeah. I also just, I I don't know what it is. It just feels like there's got to be room for conversation, for relations that are non-instrumentalized or not viewed through the instrumental lens of whatever your vocation or occupation is. I've always liked being able to sort of take the work uniform off and just kick it. (laughs) Fair enough. Work is so hard. I don't need to be reminded of it. Punch out the clock. That's great. You've received numerous prestigious prizes, too many to enumerate here, but I mean, I will mention the Pulitzer Prize in 2008 and uh, MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 2012. How does that recognition feel? How does it impact your work? What are you thinking about it? Does it add to the pressure? Does it motivate you? I mean, I probably have written a lot less because of it. I mean, listen, it, it all depends who we are. And I think that I'm 54. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough and I've had enough sort of therapy to get at least a dim sense of who I am. And, you know, some people are X, Y, and Z. I've always been the sort of person that the more attention I get, the less I am interested in doing whatever I got attention for. 
friend of mine said very wisely to me, the worst thing that ever happened to you is that you weren't an unknown writer for your first 10 books. That would have made you very happy because you would have just kept writing and writing and writing. But, you know, you were recognized and acknowledged very young, and that did something to your, if we want to call it my art, that um, I still wrestle with. And so you agree with that assessment of your friend? I don't think I disagree. I think I could have used five or six books in the wilderness. I think it would have done interesting things for me. It's just what it is. I've, I've, I've never been one. Listen, as soon as I hear applause, I go silent for a year. So, <laughs> so you must have gone silent for a while then. I have. I have. It's been a long time. What do you find difficult about writing? You know, my I have a friend of mine and mentor and beloved genius, Samuel R. Delaney, you know, he sometimes raised the question of he wonders how much there is of him outside of writing because he writes in some ways compulsively you know he's a he's like in some ways the the kind of writer a lot of people want to be and a lot of my writer friends are they write non-stop that's what they are and he you know he raised that question how much of you is there outside of this set of practice you know what makes it so hard for me is that i perhaps and this is just a stab in the dark it's provisional because we don't know the answer even to ourselves the answer to the question that is ourselves i I have my doubts about the form. I think I grew up in a dictatorship. I grew up surrounded by the outcomes of a dictatorship. I think that this is a form where you have to be the only one speaking. No matter how much you gussy it up by having different characters and different voices and all of the bells and whistles and the tricks we use, ultimately, it's a dictatorial form. You're this very controlling person. It is not in conversation. You're not, unless you're collaborating with another person, which very few people do, at least in literary fiction, it's just you doing the work. And I, I think there's a part of me that is very wary of that, having grown up and seeing the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I realized I loved literature, but what produces it reminds me too much of something that, uh, was very, very um, injurious in my life. You don't want to inflict that dictatorship on those characters, characters that for whom you have a, a certain fondness, I imagine. I don't know if I have fondness of it. I just, you have to accrue to yourself a certain amount of authority. And I just, by my nature, I, I, I lance my own authority. But I'm also just you know, if I if I liked authority more, it'd be easier to be an author. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I wouldn't undermine myself so much. I think I can't write a sentence without guffawing. Mm-hmm. Oh, just, wow. Like, like guffawing at, at myself. There's a part of me that just, because of, again, my childhood, because of my father, because of everything that, you know, wants to resist even the me. And so when you're, when you don't guffaw, is that a signal to you that you've, written something quote unquote good no 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 this is not an inner critic uh-huh. who is part of my writing instrument this is just an anti-authoritarian doesn't like the form at all he isn't trying to help the form it's not an uncommon thing for there to be artists who are not completely believers in their form mm-hmm. you look at alan moore in comic books you look at uh, Hideki Anno in anime, it's not uncommon. And these are people who end up wrestling with their form because they're perhaps too aware of its limitations, too aware 
of its dangers doesn't make me a better or worse person. It's not a moral position, believe me. I wish that I didn't, wasn't so messed up <laughs> that I couldn't just fully embrace the craft that I have taken up as my life goal. Or is it a question that the form needs some evolution, that it's antiquated and, and maybe there are alternative ways of, of developing storytelling? I'm very sure. And I just don't. I picked a form which I have big questions about. And there's plenty of people who are altering the form and doing wild, radical things. And I don't have the talent to do that. I'm just stuck in that sort of uh, ambivalent state. It happens. And I've, you know, I've written three books so far with that ambivalent state. I'm amazed I wrote one. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm calling it a win so far. So talking of authority, you're also a contributing editor for the Boston Review. And I'm sure that requires a form of authority, albeit a different type, but also you're a creative writing teacher at MIT. Yes. And so that must be another form of authority. And so how do these different roles use different muscles uh, with regard to writing uh, and that art? I mean, I think when I was a fiction editor at the Boston Review, it was, it was all about being Santa Claus. You were just finding young writers or writers that hadn't gotten the recognition they deserve. And basically it was Christmas or whatever holiday you want to say. You were figuring out ways to publish people that maybe wouldn't otherwise be published. I mean, my God, we did such great work there publishing, you know, first time voices, uh, what would be considered marginalized or my, from marginalized or minoritized communities. It was awesome. And I think that that's the thing, because look, privilege, sure, we should wrestle with privilege. But what's interesting about privilege is what can we do with it? You know, for me, being the editor was also just privilege. And I was like, yo, let's give it away. Let's see how many people we can make happy, how many people we can, you know, turn this into a form of Christmas, you know, <laughs> a non kind of capital Christmas, capitalist Christmas. <laughs> it's the same thing with teaching, you know, teaching is... um you know, the, the nature for me of being an instructor is I have benefited from so many mentors, so many teachers. How can I help? How can I be of service? But in a way that I can disappear, you know, where it's not about me. You know, my students are not constantly hearing about me and my work or any, none of that. The best instructor disappears and creates an opportunity for their students to be transformed by the material. But that's tough for an artist, to, no? I mean, kind of back to that idea of a muscle. I mean, it's must be difficult for an artist to be self-effacing somewhat, no? I don't know. I think it's for some people it's difficult to be self-effacing. I think the average student has so many burdens and is under so many pressures. You know, they've got enough on their minds. And I'm teaching at a place where... It's even worse, a place like MIT, the amount of pressures. You know what? The less they have to deal with my personality, the, <laughs> the, more, the more we can focus on what's glorious about the material, the better. There's a lot of room there, and there's a lot of things that are interesting. What projects, literary or other, do you have going on right now? Are you, are you working on some, a new book or a new collection, or what, what have you got going on? 
I'm, you know what? I just had a novel that I worked on for two years completely collapse on me. Like, oh no, I can't use any of it. Oh no, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and there's no rescuing it. Thank you. It's, it happens. It's not a big deal. I think most writers just like go on vacation for a week or two if they can get it. Um, yeah, so I got to figure out a new book to work on because this one, woof, this one went up. May I ask what you might have learned about that process, about this collapse? I'm not sure I know. I think I just, I'm always reminded of my limitations as an artist. And I think that it's a good uh, humility check, you know, I'm a... Uh, it is what it is, bro. You got to just yeah. figure out a way to pick yourself back up. <laughs> That's the core characteristic of great artists, I think, is that persistence and resilience in the face of doing work that ultimately doesn't pan out. Let me tell you, a book is nothing. This life's going to hit us with curves. Got to be resilient. Oh, so, yeah. You know, you got to get up. So now I'd love to ask you about your own literary tastes and quick questions on, on what you've enjoyed reading in the past and so on. And I'll start with uh, a question that I particularly like, which is, what's your favorite book that I've never heard of? Incantations and Other Stories by Anjana Apachana. I've never heard of it. Tell me about it. It's a wonderful collection. Uh, South Asian, Indian diaspora, brilliant work. Not a lot of people have read it. Just a wonderful, wonderful book. Is it a recent book? No, no. It's been out for a while. Maybe, oof. This is older. Apachana has a, uh, wrote a novel recently, but, uh, the stories themselves are just luminous. In what sense? Well, I mean, they're beautifully written. The heart of the tales, uh, the stories are both honest without being sensational, unflinching without being cruel. And at, at every sort of sentence and every, Seen every incident, every kind of exchange, uh, there's that human sense of, you know, life is all about consequences and how desperate I think so many of us are to not think of them. It's really great stuff. Really, really great stuff. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? That's a good one. And that's a tough one. Luckily for me, I've kept my notes open here mm -hmm. so that i wouldn't forget you have your little spreadsheet <laughs> i have a well no i just have a way of kind of like forgetting what i've been it's just you you could get reading and, and then you get you know you start getting lost but so for example i read a paul Beatty novel you know i i read paul Beatty nonstop. okay i've read everything from the moment i i was reading and was Aware of Paul when he was a slam poet. Wow. Yeah, back in the day, man. So just, just for our listeners to situate, Paul Beatty uh, was the author of uh, that novel, The Sellout, which won the Booker Prize. Which won the um, Booker Prize. That's the novel I hadn't read. Wow. I hadn't read. And I just read The Sellout, and it was one of the best things I've read. It's and an I amazing like, book. Yeah. Just blown away. So that's a book that I, I could safely say was like, just to kind of blew my damn mind. I was like, all right, this, this is not a talent that's diminishing with age, really not diminishing with age. And then, uh, you know, uh, the, another kind of big award winner, um, uh, Joshua Cohen's The Netanyahu's. Brilliant book. Yeah. Woo-wee. I loved it. My God. Absolutely. Joshua, don't hurt them, bro. <laughs> my goodness. Such an amazing, amazing book and, and really, 
uh, it felt really new, but at the same time, it connected to all sorts of great authors. Uh, I just, yeah, really enjoyed that. That's a great answer. What's a book that you found disappointing in the last 12 months? What's a book that you didn't love? Maybe you thought it was overrated. You know what it is? And I think I find this is that reading is under so much threat. Why would I discourage someone to read a book just because of my tastes? You know, and just because I read the book at a certain specific time, people are such, I, I don't know about anyone else, but I find so many times that I have to wrestle with people's universalism to remind them that they're reading this book at a very specific time. That book could have a very different impact for them. You know, you shouldn't be like, this book just sucks. But you know, there's a novel, an older novel. I love uh, Olaf Stapleton. And recently I reread Star Maker, okay. which is one of his two great, like there's two, you know, uh, the first and last man and uh, the star maker were the two books. And he's got a bunch of them. You know, he's got Sirius. He's got Odd John. And um, he's kind of a person that had an enormous outsized impact on a lot of writers. Hmm. You know, they kind of positioned him as the kind of the post Wells. Wells, he wasn't that. Anyway, Star Maker was disappointing. A book that um, I had read a couple of times when I was young and loved. And then, you know, you're older. And I, I just found it very disappointing. I found it very wooden. Oh, that doesn't sound yeah. too good. Okay. Now, yeah. what single book would you take to a desert island? Ooh. Well, you know what? I think I would probably take you know, I would right before the ships going down, I would be looking at <laughs> the ship's library. I'd be looking at these two books, right? I'd be looking at Tony Morrison's Beloved or I would be looking at Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren. Mm -hmm. Fantastic choices. I, I would either go down because of my indecision or finally the frozen water lapping at my calves would force me just to choose. Then just to choose one. Great choices. Mm -hmm. And finally, last question. What book changed your mind? I would say that, you know, we lost Mike Davis recently, one of the greatest just writers, one of the greatest Marxist critics, just enormously important. And I still remember when I encountered City of Quartz. And how did that change your mind? What was, what was its impact? First of all, I was kind of dismissive. And again, I was very young. Remember, this book came out in 1990. I was very dismissive of like economic Marxist criticism and how that could play a role in you know, my writing. I didn't understand the sort of the larger political economy that I was existing in. And I sort of had this a little bit too cute for their own good, emaciated sense of what a writer was supposed to be. And he changed my mind on international political economy, he changed my mind on what a critical mind looks like. He changed my mind on what an engaged activist is and transformed my sense of cities. I didn't understand cities as well. I lived in cities. I loved cities, but I loved them the way a person uh, loves something uncritically. And I didn't understand what a city actually is. And it wasn't until I read City of Courts that I had finally been given a real map of a city. A map that was not just spatial, that was temporal, that was cultural, that was political, that was societal, and in some ways ontological as well. It was just an extraordinary 
gift that he gave me and, you know, in some ways wrenched me out of my sort of uh, callow solipsism, political solipsism. You know, and I'm sure I'm still callow, I'm still solipsistic, whatever. But if there's anything good about what I've learned, and I, I can put it at the feet of, a, of someone like Mike Davis. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really such a pleasure to speak with you, Juno Diaz. And uh, thank you for your fantastic books. And I'm very much recommending to our listeners to start reading them if they haven't done so already. And uh, again, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Charles, thank you. And thank you for all the wonderful conversation. Here's a quick recap of the books that Juno Diaz mentioned in the episode. His favorite book that I'd never heard of was Incantations and Other Stories by Anjana Apachana, which was published in 1991. It's a collection of short stories set in India dealing with the theme of an evolving society. The best book that he'd read in the last 12 months was The Sellout by Paul Beattie, published in 2015, which won the Booker Prize, which looks at the state of race relations in the U.S. in a somewhat postmodern and quirky way. The book that he found most disappointing in the last 12 months was Star Maker, published in 1937 by the British philosopher and sci-fi writer Olaf Stapleton. The book that he would take to a desert island was either Beloved by Toni Morrison, published in 1987, which won the Pulitzer Prize that year, or Dahlgren, a sci-fi novel by Samuel Delaney, published in 1975. And finally, the book that changed his mind was City of Quartz by Mike Davis, published in 1990, which opened his mind to the many roles a city can play. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account, at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.